I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State. Even there, you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Thursday, September 21st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, hear from Governor Phil Bryant at his office reviews as his office reviews recommendations for a state takeover of the Jackson Public School District. As Mississippi struggles with being listed as one of the fattest states in the nation, the city of Vicksburg is winning a prestigious award for its work to promote health and fitness. With football season in full swing, find out how to make sure your tailgate meals don't put you at risk for food poisoning. And in our book club, former National Poet Laureate Natasha Trethaway shares her poetic voice and its sorrowful roots. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Governor Phil Bryant says he has no timetable in mind when it comes to the potential state takeover of the Jackson Public School District. Bryant says he's meeting with district officials and considering the evidence they present about the condition of the district. I met with uh, Superintendent Murray yesterday, Dr. Murray. Um, we got 700 pages that we're carefully reviewing. We have the responses from the city of Jackson that we're going through also. We're not going to rush the judgment on this. This is a, a very important decision that will be made. I certainly respect um, the board's decision to send me that request for emergency, uh, but we are, uh, we are going to make sure that uh, we know exactly uh, what the condition of the city of Jackson Public School system is now. That, that wasn't just a snapshot that occurred. And And we'll make a decision uh, when we feel comfortable uh, that we have uh, completed our due diligence. Last week, the State Board of Education voted to take over the district. Bryant says that's not something he wants to rush into. It's not something that I enjoy doing. It is a burden to our state, uh, a burden to uh, the Department of Education. They have many duties that they have to carry on, so this will be an additional one. Uh, And so absolutely, I'm very careful about entering into any takeover by the state of Mississippi, and it is certainly not something that I look forward to doing. The governor was asked about the group of parents suing to stop the takeover before it starts. 
Now, there's always uh, a judge could issue a stay that might affect that, uh, but we haven't heard that that would take place. But what will more importantly affect my decision is what do we know? What does my staff have the opportunity to review? How comfortable we, do we feel that the proper steps have been taken? I have total confidence in Dr. Wright and her staff. Uh, and, but we, again, it, it is not a rubber stamp. This is something that we are very careful uh, about before we enter into a takeover of any school district. School funding has been a common point of contention among legislators, educators, and the public. But Governor Bryant doesn't think funding woes are at the root of Jackson Public Schools' problems. I asked the superintendent, Dr. Murray, yesterday about his funding. He says they're stable. There hasn't been one complaint from anyone in the public school system that I've talked to. Uh, about the funding. Um, uh, And so I don't think that is an issue. The issue is it's a failing school system. Uh, And these children deserve better. Uh, The uh, the children of the Jackson Public School System deserve better. I met with a delegation yesterday uh, of legislators, House members, and senators and told them this is on us. A decade ago, we should have been looking at the Jackson Public School System when we knew uh, that it was not performing at the level that it should be and began to do something about it. Now, uh, now that the alarm has been sounded, everyone wants to rush in. Uh, where were they when we needed them a decade ago? Governor Phil Bryant addressing the potential takeover of the state's second largest school district. Coming up, the city of Vicksburg is being honored for thinking big, building on strengths, and engaging residents to tackle community health problems. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts of your favorite MPB Think Radio programs are available now. With any podcast app, you can search, subscribe, and never miss a second of MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. One of Mississippi's riverfront cities is also one of the healthiest in the country. Vicksburg is one of eight communities to win the 2017 Culture of Health Award. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Prize will include a $25,000 cash prize. Vicksburg receives the honor for promoting healthy living. They join the ranks of 34 other communities across the country that have been given the award for building a culture of health. Abby Kofsky is a managing director with the foundation. She tells MPB's Ezra Wall, prize communities see health as not simply medical care. One of the things that that I will say is the work that we do around the Culture of Health Prize allows us the opportunity to look at uh, communities and cities around the country. And we hear a lot of of places that are, you know, putting in walking trails, um, that have walking clubs, and and it's great. It's it's certainly important for, um, you know, physical activity, uh, all all the health benefits that come with that. But one of the things that we saw in, in Vicksburg is that, um, you know, what had started as a, a commitment to, you know, walking um, and walking clubs um, was really becoming a, a way of life. Um, and we saw, you know, walking paths. We saw people on them, <laughs> which you don't always see. Sometimes you go to places and you see these beautiful walking paths. But we saw people on them, and we saw it, it really fostering a sense of community. Um, we saw people kind of taking that notion about how uh, opportunities for, for health and well-being um, could be an economic driver and how, you know, taking that mindset and thinking about how do you, 
how do you revitalize downtown Vicksburg? How do you make it a destination where um, businesses want to locate, where families want to locate? It really became clear to us that, that that was something special about Vicksburg. The other thing that I, w- I would say was notable was the the real commitment to youth. There was a sense of of really investing um, specifically through the schools. It was really remarkable um, in creating a next generation of leaders. Oh, you you talked about you know, walking trails and all these other things that involve like infrastructure and and policy and things that the city has sort of set up for its citizens. But uh, you raised an interesting point when you said you actually saw people walking on them. So, but once once cities start to put this infrastructure in place, how can how can they reach out to their citizens at large to try to make sure that people are using the facilities or that they're even putting in the right kinds of facilities that people want to be using? Well, I think, you know, some of the things that, that we saw um, in, in Vicksburg is that you had partners, you know, around the table um, and certainly, uh, you know, partners that are kind of coming from different sectors, you know, so to, to have the, the Chamber of Commerce um, to have the United Way, to have faith-based groups um, and groups like um, Shape Up Vicksburg that are working together um, to, you know, encourage people and to give them the, the supports um, and to ask them what they need. And I, I think that was a sense of really listening to people um, and making them feel welcome, making them feel, um, I was, you know, really struck we spent some time in the, uh, the military uh, park um, and, you know, recognizing what a beautiful natural asset um, that is for the city, um, but recognizing at first that people weren't using it. And it just asking the question, well, what would, what would incentivize you to come here? How do we um, create programs that are going to be meaningful for you and your family? So I think um, there was a sense of, you know, a diverse group of partners coming together and genuinely listening to the community about what they needed, what they wanted, and, and being able then to create those opportunities. Um, you know, the, the community garden that was put in um, out by the, um, the airport, you know, it was just a really interesting way of... Um, um, sort of recognizing that there was some interest in, in um, this opportunity around gardening, leveraging this sort of unique asset in, in this space uh, near the airport, and then then building a playground um, there too. So you got this sense, and walking trails there. Again, we were struck with you know, an, another walking trail that it catered to um, people really coming to use it and thinking about um, what would make it attractive uh, for a family, uh, for young children, to kind of have those those different resources there for people to really enjoy it and, and make it meaningful. So somebody's listening to this and says, I like my town pretty well. What's, what's the application process like to uh, become a uh, Culture of Health prize winner? Well, I would say that actually our, our application process for the 2018 prize is, is now open, but as I'm sure our, our colleagues colleagues um, in Vicksburg would tell you it's not an easy um, application process. This is a, a rigorous uh, prize. We, we select from over 200 communities every year. Um, but what we recognize is that communities are finding um, different ways uh, to build a culture of health and bringing different partners together. And, and we're excited to hear and learn from the different ways that communities are doing that. Um, so I would encourage uh, those that 
that are thinking about how their communities are, are taking on these challenges around health and well-being and encourage them to go to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation uh, website at rwjf.org where they can find out more about how to apply for the 2018 prize. Abby Kofsky is with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. We've been speaking with her about the 2017 RWJF Culture of Health Prize uh, recipients, which includes this year Vicksburg, Mississippi. So, Abby, thank you very much for sharing with us. Thank you. My pleasure. The other winning communities are located in Wisconsin, Kansas, Massachusetts, Maryland, Virginia, California, and New York. Coming up, what to keep in mind for school lunches, tailgates, and more. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is known for many things, and no matter who you ask, catfish is always at the top of that list. On the next Creature Comforts, we welcome Bob Crosby, a U.S. Coast Guard licensed captain and owner of Blue Cat Guide Service. We'll discuss the state of catfish in the Mississippi River, how to improve your chances to catch that prized fish, and boat safety when you're out on the water. Also, Dr. Major will be ready to take your pet questions. So tune in today for the next Creature Comforts on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi families are at risk for foodborne illness during the upcoming fall season. Autumn can be a busy time, whether preparing a packed lunch for a child, a picnic dinner, or a game-time tailgate feast for a group. USDA experts say it's important to follow food safety guidelines to prevent food poisoning. The CDC estimates that food poisoning results in approximately 128,000 hospitalizations and an estimated 3,000 deaths each year. Within just two hours at room temperature, experts say the microorganisms that are growing on food can multiply to dangerous levels, causing sickness. Since school lunches and tailgate meals are rarely kept in the refrigerator, parents and fans should take extra precautions when preparing and packing. Sarah Lichtman is a food safety expert for the USDA. She has a few tips for us. When you are doing something like tailgating in the fall, I know people have a lot of like tailgating or they might go apple picking and have picnics and things like that. And you want to make sure that you're storing foods properly before and after your tailgate or your picnic. And so when you pack a cooler, you want to wrap your raw meat and poultry products, place those at the bottom of the cooler, and that will prevent juices from dripping on other foods that are ready to eat. One of the important things with tailgating or packing a picnic or even packed lunches for your kids going back to school is it's important to keep hot food hot and um, cold foods cold. And so when you transport perishable foods to those tailgate sites, you want to store them in a cooler and you want to have at least two cold sources in that cooler. And then during a tailgate party or anything like that where you're eating outside, It's important to keep cold foods like potato salad or guacamole or cut fruit in a cold environment. So a good tip would be to nest those serving dishes in beds of ice. That would keep that perishable food cold. And then keeping hot foods hot, you can use those commercially available little stoves where you place the food on top of it um, and it keeps it hot throughout the event. Then when you're done with something like that, you want to make sure you pack up leftovers Um, in clean containers and pack them in a cooler with ice before you head out to the game or head home. What about the actual preparation? If you're tailgating and you bring a grill, how do you keep your food safe from the cooler to the grill to the bun? 
Well, one of the most important things is to avoid cross-contamination. I know some folks like to just use one tray, use it for the raw hamburgers, and then put the cooked hamburgers back on that tray. That is a big no-no. We want to make sure you use a new tray when you take things off of the grill. And another important thing is to make sure you pack a food thermometer. You really can't tell if food is done just by looking at it. So your hamburger or your steak or even your chicken might appear to be done, but it might not be um, cooked to the correct temperature. So you want to make sure you bring a food thermometer and cook those things to the correct internal temperature. What about utensils? Do they need to be cleaned throughout? If you're turning a raw burger over on the grill and then taking it off, can that cause contamination? Yeah, it can. And um, I would actually recommend bringing two sets of utensils. So one for handling those raw uh, meats and, and the second one for handling them once they're cooked. When a child goes off to school and they have a lunchbox and they have, uh, as you said, cold foods that need to stay cold, do you just recommend putting an ice pack in with that lunch? Yeah, we recommend having at least two cold sources. And so one of those could be a commercially available ice pack. Um, Another option is to freeze a juice box um, the night before. And by the time your kid goes to eat their lunch, the juice box will be thawed out and it will have kept that perishable food cold all the way until lunchtime. When it's uh, hot food, like maybe soup or something, is it okay to just put it in a thermos, or do you need to do something in addition to that? Yeah, that's fine. Um, One of the things we do recommend is to, um, while you're preparing the lunch, fill that container with boiling water and let it stand for a few minutes. That will warm up the container itself, and it'll help keep the food warm for longer. So you want to let that stand for a few minutes, empty it out, and then put in piping hot food. You want to close that up and make sure that you teach your kids not to open it, not to take any peeks inside until lunchtime, and that should keep it above 140 degrees, which is the safe temperature for hot foods. Is a thermos a thermos, or is there something to look for to make sure it's going to keep food warm or keep food cold? You know, we don't have specific recommendations as to brands or anything like that, but you just want to make sure that, you know, it's it's rather new. You know, you don't want to use anything that's like 10 years old or something like that, and that the container itself is intact and doesn't have any dents or dings or um, in the case of, like, for instance, a lunchbox doesn't have any scratches or tears in the material that might let hot or cold air out of that container. Anything else our listeners need to know? they can go to foodsafety.gov. And we also have a meat and poultry hotline that's available. That phone number is one eight 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 mp hotline That's M as in meat, P as in poultry, hotline. And we have food safety experts available who can answer any questions you may have about packing children's lunches or about tailgating or really year-round about any type of safe food preparation. Sarah Lickman is a food safety expert for the USDA. Sarah, thank you so much for some good tips. Thank you. Coming up, here from Mississippi's former poet laureate in our book club. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. 
As an MPB listener, you probably know of Radio Reading Service, our free closed-circuit network for the print impaired. But did you know that means Radio Reading Service isn't only for the visually impaired and that MPB provides the special receiver you need for the service? Call 601-432-6301 to see if you qualify for MPB's Radio Reading Service. 601-432-6301. There's so much more to know. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Former Poet Laureate of Mississippi and the United States, Natasha Trathaway, is a decorated author. She has achieved remarkable success for her writings. Trathaway continues as the recipient of a new award, the Heinz Award in the Arts and Humanities from the Heinz Family Foundation. She's also served as a teacher, mentor, and advocate, bringing poetry to the public, particularly young people. In her work, Native Guard Poems, Trathaway explores her personal family history as a biracial child in the South and the forgotten history of the Louisiana Native Guards, a black Civil War regiment. With the current national conversation around race and the legacy of the Civil War, she tells us she found her voice writing about personal and political struggles. Like a lot of children, I I loved rhyme. I loved playing with words and the excitement of, of figuring out great pairings and phrases that were musical, but also imagistic. I think it was still, I was still a very young person, but what really helped me to find my way into poetry was losing my mother tragically at a a young age. I, I was 19 when she was killed. And within weeks after her death, one of the first things I tried to do in order to grieve and to cope with grieving was to write a poem. I was going to ask because your mother wasn't just murder. Of course, that's a horrible thing, but it it was by a family member. Well, I would argue that he was no longer a family member since my mother was divorced from my stepfather for a year when he continued to stalk her and murder her. Did you live with him when your mother was married to him? Yes. Did he threaten you at all? Oh, there were ways that he was frightening. He never beat me, but he was extremely psychologically abusive. It's interesting you say you wrote a poem, did you say a week after your mother was murdered? Yeah, within a few weeks, I would say, maybe three weeks. So you found a voice where perhaps you didn't have a voice to express that kind of emotion before. I think you're right about that. I think whatever voice I had before was very private one. I used to write in my journal. And at some point, I began writing in my journal directly to my stepfather because I knew he was reading it. And it became this way for me to challenge him. And I remember writing one time, I can say whatever I want to about you in this because you're not supposed to be reading it and you're not going to admit that you are doing it. When I made the choice to write a poem, something that I imagined was not only for me, not only for my journal, but a way that I would speak out into the world, it was freeing in some ways because I knew whether it was a good poem or not, I could share it with someone else. You came from that incredible grief to become Mississippi's Poet Laureate and then United States Poet Laureate. What was the journey like between that painful, painful time to the present? 
when I talk about what made me a poet, I really talk about two existential wounds, and we've been talking about one of them. And I think the other one that made me a poet were the wounds of my native state, that the wounds that my native state inflicted upon me, the wounds of history, the wounds of racism and social injustice. I was born in Mississippi when interracial marriage was still illegal. My parents had to break the law to go somewhere else to get married and then return breaking another law when they came back to Mississippi. From the very beginning, I was destined, I think, to be someone who was going to have to speak about, very publicly, about that kind of wound, which is not just a Mississippi wound or a Southern wound. It is indeed our American wound. What do you think about the political and social climate of today in regard to race? You know, my mother has been dead for 32 years now. You know, I was born at the height of major advances in the civil rights movement. I think she'd be surprised and saddened to see where we are now with a much more vocal voice for white supremacy and white nationalism. Things that people, I believe, thought were going away are now given much more of a platform to rear their very ugly heads. Are you actively writing about these times? Um, you know, I'm, it's, my answer is yes, but also in a different way. I have always found it so much harder to look straight on at this deeply painful rift. And so I think of Emily Dickinson saying, tell it slant. And my slant is to write about history. But when I'm writing about history, I'm always writing about the present. Natasha Trethewey is a Pulitzer Prize winner. She was the U.S. Poet Laureate. She was Mississippi's Poet Laureate and now the recipient of a Heinz Award in the Arts and Humanities. Natasha Trethewey, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It was lovely speaking with you. Thank you for listening today. I hope you'll join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio. Support for Mississippi Edition comes from Mississippi State University Center for Distance Education, providing online programs and certification at the graduate and undergraduate levels. Distance at State, even there you're here. More information at distance.msstate.edu.